This is Priya Malik, Managing Director at Step Global Group. And this is Abtin Baziri, Managing Director at Purvey Capital Management. Welcome to the Investment Migration Report. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to be investment, tax, or other professional advice or a recommendation to buy or refrain from buying any security product or service. The views and opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the views or opinions of our employers. Hello, I'm Abtin Baziri. And I'm Priya Malik. And today we're excited to welcome you to the second season, episode three of the Investment Migration Report. Today's special guest is Ronald Clasco, a founding member of Clasco Immigration Law Partners. Hi, Ron. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Abtin and Priya. It's my pleasure to be with you. I think we have a lot to talk about today. Absolutely. I know, Ron, um, a lot of people have known you from the industry, but some of our near audience that may not be familiar with you, if you don't mind, just kind of tell us how long you've been involved in immigration, and more specifically, investment migration in EP5. So I've been involved in immigration for many decades now, and uh, EB5 from pretty much from day one, uh, which was 1990 when the program started. And I've served in every capacity imaginable since then. I've, I've chaired the EB5 Committee of the American Immigration Lawyers Association for five years, the Best Practices Committee, of IIUSA, the Regional Center Trade Group, uh, and uh, I head up the large EB-5 and investor team at our law firm, Clasco Immigration Law Partners. We work with investors and regional centers and developers. We have a compliance arm, a litigation arm, and as I guess we'll be talking about today, uh, I also do a fair amount of EB-5 litigation. So, Ron, I know one of the most important things that our audience is eager to hear your thoughts on is what is the current status of EB-5? And I know you've been intimately involved on, on some of the litigations. Maybe just give us a refresher of where we are in the EB-5 reauthorization process. Well, Abtin, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that I can say something I think I haven't been able to say for about 10 years, which is I think the EB-5 program is actually healthy right now. And, and really ready to move forward. Uh, so it probably is worth doing a little bit of history of, of how we got to where we are. Um, and the EB-5 Regional Center Program, a lot of the audience probably knows, is a program that's a temporary program that has to be reauthorized at regular intervals. Uh, and for the last many years, these regular intervals where the program was reauthorized was maybe three months at a time or six months at a time. So we really did not have a long-term regional center EB-5 program for a whole lot of years. And then it went from bad to worse because on June 30, 2021, the program completely died. Uh, the, uh, the, the program lapsed. Congress did not reauthorize it. And so we had no regional center EB-5 program pretty much from June 30, 2021 until March of 2022, when Congress finally and happily reauthorized the program. Um, and that had an effective date of May. And so people were very excited. The program is back and running. It's got a long-term extension for the first time in, in a whole lot of years. And all is fine. But it turned out all wasn't fine because right before the program was meant to be effective in May, the USCIS, to everyone's shock, posted on their website 
that every one of the 630 plus approved regional centers were deauthorized and that that's how they interpreted this new law, which is called the Reform and Integrity Act. That's how they interpreted it, even though it didn't say it. Well, you know, as a lawyer involved in EB-5 and involved in litigation, my first thought is that this is wrong. We would be able to resolve it, but we couldn't. And so we did what lawyers do when the government acts in a way that we think isn't correct. And we filed a lawsuit. Uh, and I'm happy to go into the details of the lawsuit, but the bottom line is the federal court judge did something very unusual. He issued a nationwide preliminary injunction applying to everybody, not just the plaintiffs, saying that what the Immigration Service did was wrong and they are enjoined from continuing to act that way. And so again, time for celebration. The program is back and running. And the Immigration Service issued a new form called for investors to file called an I-526E. And lo and behold, you read the form and it says you can't file this form as an investor until the regional center has a receipt notice for a project application. Well, they're correct. The under the law, you have to the regional center has to file a project application, and the next day, investors can file petitions. But the immigration service said, "Well, no, we're not going to say the next day. We're going to say you have to wait till we give you a receipt notice." A month goes by, two months go by, no receipt notices. So again, the program is stalled, and we're ready to go back into court. But before we had to do that, the good news is that the government and all of the plaintiffs reached a settlement agreement. And under the settlement agreement that we'll talk about in as much detail as everybody wants to hear, but one of the main points is that we do not need to wait for a receipt notice anymore. We have 10 days maximum wait. If 10 days go by and there's no receipt notices, investors can file. So where we are now is we have a new regional center program reauthorized by Congress. It's got a five-year extension, which is great. Even after the five years, all investors before that are grandfathered, even if there's a delay in extending the program. Um, the All regional centers that were authorized before are still authorized. Um, and the investors can file petitions no later. They, they have to wait a maximum of 10 days after the regional center files a project application. So that's a long way of saying we're back up and running and uh, I feel real good about the future of the regional center EB-5 program. That's great. Um, I think what, you know, like you mentioned, the grandfathering was sort of a big deal from an investor standpoint because I work directly with investors. Um, that was the most important thing because during this whole process since last June when the program was expired, the main thing that investors were worried about were their applications and if the new regulations changed, were they going to affect them? And now that the program was expired, were they not going to have their applications processed? Some families who were, had already been waiting for three or four years to get to their final stage. So from an investor standpoint, the grandfathering portion of this um, reauthorization has been, I think, the most important part. Um, for the benefit of investors. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that was a critical part of the negotiations in the legislation. 
because you couldn't have a situation where investors are filing a year or two before the end of this extension and having to worry that if their case isn't concluded and Congress doesn't reauthorize the program, they've done everything for nothing. Uh, and this law says as long as you filed your petition before the program expires, even if it expires in 2028, you're still going to be processed to completion. And that's really very important. And there's another side of this, Priya, that was in the settlement agreement that we reached in this litigation, um, which is the issue of, so investors now have filed with, with um, uh, regional centers that are approved, but not every regional center is going to choose to do business under this new law because the responsibilities and liabilities of a regional center are far greater under the new law than they were under the old law. And so these are businesses. They're perfectly able to say, no, I'm, I'm not prepared to do all of these extra investor protections in the new law. I'm, I'm opting out. Well, if they do that, what happens to investors who invested in their projects? And one of the things we were able to get into the settlement agreement is if that happens, and it will happen, even if your regional center chooses not to proceed under the new law, you will still have your I-526 petition adjudicated and hopefully approved, irrespective of the regional center not still being in existence. Ron, I, I want to jump in and ask a lot of detailed questions about the various litigations and, and the settlement agreement. but. Just for our audience, if you don't mind, and, and I work with developers all the time, uh, maybe talk about how crucial it is to have this five-year runway until 2027. You know, in, in the past when we had these short reauthorizations, I think as short as six days of one of them, and one, you know, the longest was maybe six months, but 21 different reauthorizations. You know, how, how that uncertainty really affects developers. I mean, if you're a developer, you're looking at a you know three to five year development process when you don't have visibility more than six months. If you're able to raise money, how did how, how did that affect the market in terms of developers, as well as projects, as well as areas that really need foreign direct investment? Looking at EB five as a as a as a viable funding option for projects that create jobs in the United States. Sure, and Abtin, the point you raise is absolutely critical. So this was what is it called? Death by a thousand cuts. Uh, so June 30, 2021 was the thousandth cut. That ended things until it was reauthorized. But the thousand cuts before that were the three month and the six day and the six month extensions where developers really couldn't. If you, if all you know is this program is going to exist for another three months, you can't begin to go through the process of putting together a project that may take six months minimum to put together with a three month window. So, and this has been going on for probably five, six, seven years where we've had these short-term extensions. So as an investor, an investor is saying, well, you know, am I really comfortable with a program where the U.S. government is only extending it three months, even if I can get my petition in? And the answer is in many cases, no, they were not. If I'm a developer, am I comfortable trying to start to develop a project that's going to depend on EB-5 money as part of the capital stack? when the program may expire in three months. So for everybody across the spectrum in the EB-5 industry, even though the program was technically alive before June 30, 2021, it was kind of hanging by a thread. Um, and only now that we have a long-term extension, 
um, with 100 pages of congressional investor protections built in, which I think are mostly very good, um, that we really now have a viable long-term program that investors and developers and regional centers uh, can count on for the long term. And how long-term is this extension, just so the investors know, how long will this go on for before there are any more changes? Sure. So it's September 30, 2027 is, is this extension. Um, we hope that we'll get another long-term extension before then. Uh, but for uh, both investors and developers, we, we know we have at least a uh, five-plus year window. And, and maybe if you don't mind just outlining, you know, uh, the cost and the work and all the upfront um, process that has to happen for a developer or a project sponsor or anyone creating jobs to be able to get their project in the market. What does that significant cost look like? And is it feasible to spend all that money to be able to go in the market on a three-month extension versus a five-year extension? Yeah. So I, I don't pretend to be an expert on all of the underwriting and Putting a, putting a deal together, but certainly we know that uh, in order to do this, you have to factor in to the capital stack, um, what, you know, how much EB-5 money is going to be available, where does it fit in the capital stack, um, is there going to be a senior loan, is the EB-5 money going to come in as equity, or is it going to come in as debt, um, and lots of, of, of six months to a year, I guess, with most of my clients, uh, it takes as a minimum to put together a deal with EB-5 as part of it. Uh, the bank may not want EB-5 money in the deal. Um, the, uh, uh, the, the plan to have EB-5 money as debt may have to be changed to EB-5 money coming in as equity. There's an awful lot of moving, moving parts. As an immigration lawyer, my role is making sure that the EB-5, that where EB-5 comes in is going to be fully compliant with the U.S. immigration laws, so such that the investors will ultimately be able to get their green cards if they invest in the project. So my part uh, as, as immigration lawyer is serving as what I call the quarterback of a team that is going to include a securities lawyer, a business plan writer, and an economist at a minimum uh, to put together all of the project documents that make this EB-5 investment approvable for the investors. So Ron, I just wanted to jump back to something you were mentioning earlier in terms of the reauthorization and all the new regulations that have been put on regional centers that they have to comply with. Um, can you speak a little bit about what some of those new regulations are? And do you think that is going to weed out sort of the regional centers that maybe weren't functioning professionally or ethically and we're going to sort of be left with the cream of the crop or the better regional centers that have been making this their actual business over the past however many years? Yeah, Priya, certainly a good question and a lot of the new law is devoted to that. Uh, and to answer your last question first, I do think that there will be a lot of regional centers that will look at what's required to operate under the new law and say, well, I can't do that with, you know, I originally I had one, one staff member uh, and there's no way I can undertake all of these things with one staff member. I'd have to build up a whole team and not every regional center wants to do that. So just to give you some examples, 
of the compliance provisions, the investor protection provisions that are in the new law, um, uh, all of the investors' funds now must be segregated, each investor in a separate segregated account. There, the, the regional center has to hire what's called a fund administrator um, as a, a independent third party to review all of the uh, all of the funds and all of the use of the investors' funds and report on that. And if the regional center chooses not to incur the expense of a fund administrator, they have to do a certified audit, uh, which is you know, obviously a significant undertaking. Um, the, the law provides for uh, regular notifications to investors of the status of the project, which was not required before. There's all sorts of uh, transparency provisions regarding anyone involved in the marketing of the regional center project, uh, what, what they call in the law direct and third party promoters. And the bottom line is at every level, at the regional center level, at the investor level, there has to be full disclosure of everybody getting any kind of funds or commissions or, or monetary compensation uh, arising out of the uh, the sale of the security, which is the EB-5 interest. Um, and there's new provisions for people marketing the projects where they will have to register with the U.S. government, uh, meet certain guidelines. There's new provisions regarding who can be involved in a regional center. And basically, you have to be uh, a U.S. citizen or permanent resident to be involved at, at any significant level within the regional center or the project. Uh, if you have any criminal background or securities violation background, you're pretty much out of the EB-5 regional center program. So that's somewhat of a summary of, of maybe 50 or 60 pages in the new law, all designed to make sure that, you know, you can never guarantee anything, but to do everything possible to maximize the chances that you're going to have professionally run regional centers, uh, that investors will have protections, uh, and that uh, the program will not be subject to uh, fraudulent operators. There weren't a lot of them previously, but there were some and there should be none. And I feel, you know, as somebody who's deeply vested in this program, uh, the more that's done to prevent fraud in the program, the happier I am. Uh, that, that, that brings up a great point, Ron. I think um, a lot of the integrity measures that Congress enacted as part of this legislation uh, were just to really protect the investors. There's, you know, you see those headlines where a regional center raised $100 million and then instead of spending on a project, they went and bought Ferraris and a yacht and private jets. And my, my concern is, you know, that never happens when, you know, with Goldman Sachs, that never happens with J.B. Morgan, that never happens with Wells Fargo. Why is it that that happens to EB-5 lenders, but not bank lenders? And the answer is because they're a lot more sophisticated. They have construction monitoring, construction draws, and then for investors, they have fund administrators. I think the easiest way to make sure that no funny business happens is requiring Project One to have construction monitoring, construction draws, and then uh, fund administrators and audited financials. The first part, I think Congress missed. They didn't actually require that as part of this. This is something we have a purvey, we do that as, as, as best practices. You know, a developer, if they spent 
ten million dollars in concrete, they show the receipts, and then they get you know rebated and have regular construction draws. It would never be a situation where J.P. Morgan or you know Wells Fargo or any of these other lenders just write a blank check to the developers so they can do funny business. So there's those checks and balances. I think that part was missed, but. The great part that I think they did include in this is to have fund administrators. Again, that's something we always use as best practices. And we also still um, use uh, audited financials. But I think there's a loophole that if you have audited financials, you don't have to have a fund administrator. But the other part of that I think it's interesting is no no auditor is going to audit you without having a fund administrator. So actually, at least investors are going to be protected from the fund administrator part. But I think uh, it would have been nice to have also construction monitoring, construction draw also included as best practices, really for more protections of the investors and the project. Yeah, I think what, what this will weed out, Upteen, is um, there was a, a prevailing concept under the EB-5 law of, of what we called rent-a-centers, rent-a-regional-center. Um, perfectly legal, perfectly proper. Um, however, the concept that a regional center with one or two employees was going to have 40 projects that they're sponsoring and was going to do everything necessary to provide transparency to investors, oversee the, the sale of the securities, make sure there were no compliance problems. It just didn't exist. And so we'll have to see together whether a lot of these uh, rent-a-centers with mass numbers of projects um, we'll continue to choose to do business under the new law. I don't know the answer to that yet. I'm guessing that there will be a number of them who, who will say, well, everything you just described, Upteen, is something they're not prepared to do. It's not what they signed up for when they, when they went into this program. You know, the, 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 the problem uh, that, that you described has been, I think, a function of a couple of things. You know, number one is you have an agency of the U.S. government, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, that really does not have as part of its charter investor protections, urban development, encouraging foreign direct investment to the U.S. All the wonderful things that the EB-5 program does has nothing to do with a function of the Immigration Service. Maybe it does with a Commerce Department or somewhere else. but. The, you know, Congress has put this program within the, not the Department of Commerce, uh, but the, the Department of Homeland Security. And so they view this as, you know, just a security issue. You know, we, and, and, and they don't, they don't have an expansive view of the EB-5 program, nor do they have, you know, all of the expertise that you would have if, if this were monitored, for example, by the Securities and Exchange Commission. So you have that on the one hand. On the other hand, you have investors who are often not either not as sophisticated as many investors would be. They may be foreign nationals. They have no knowledge of the U.S. system whatsoever, no knowledge of U.S. developers, no knowledge of how projects work, no knowledge of our laws. Um, and they don't necessarily, all, their, their main motivation very often is getting a green card. They don't want to lose their money, um, but you know they've been you know they have a, a, an agent who's been advising them. And the agent has said this looks good. All right, if, if it looks good and I'm going to get a green card, where do I sign? And so we have a combination of you know not necessarily the best agency to oversee the program, and not necessarily the most sophisticated investors who are the most motivated 
to do due diligence before they invest in a project. Uh, so Ron, um, jumping back to the, the litigation uh, against USCIS, you know, just so, so our audience is clear, there was a two different pieces of litigation. One, I, I believe, was filed by Bering Regional Center, and then another one was filed by IUSA and five regional centers. Do you mind just going over the differences between the two and just how they all ended up converging? Well, the the differences, there were some differences in legal theories, but where what we were trying to accomplish and what we thought was wrong were the same. So the Bering Regional Center filed their case in the Northern District of California. Uh, we filed our case, we being, uh, we I was co-counsel representing IAUSA, and as you said, five of the largest regional centers in the country. Uh, we filed in the District Court of the District of Columbia. Uh, in the end, the cases were consolidated together uh, in the Northern District of California, so it was all one case. Um, and uh, you know, we argued the case together, and we got a settlement agreement signed by all parties. So even though it started, as two separate litigations, it ended up being consolidated into one litigation. And in my opinion, I believe, uh, you know, I don't think GT did a good job in terms of representing Bering. Everyone I talked to, they were very pleased with, you know, you and uh, your partner jumping in on the litigation and really saving the, the industry. And I think a lot of people really appreciate that. So thank you for, for getting us to this point. And I believe as of last Friday, we, we have that settlement signed uh, by the judge. So we're off to the races. Is that correct? Well, uh, you know, first of all, I, I you know, I, I don't want to comment on other counsel. I do think that, um, you know, that, that we feel very good. And more importantly, our clients feel that, you know, very happy with the result and with, you know, the, how the lawyer, the legal team uh, uh, represented their claims. Um, so that much I'll comment on. Uh, as far as the, the settlement agreement, it's signed by all parties, which includes the Department of Justice and the Immigration Service and all of the plaintiffs. Um, as we're doing this recording today, uh, as far as I know, the judge has been out of the office, so he hasn't signed it. But everyone in the industry assumes there's pretty close to 100 percent chance that the judge will sign it. Uh, and But I can't confirm as we speak right now that the judge has signed it. Okay, and I just had a question about, so before this reauthorization happened in March, obviously for a period of time, the regional center program was expired. The direct program, however, continued throughout that time. Um, and I know that a lot of investors who sort of didn't want to wait to see what the outcome of the regional center was going to be were choosing to invest in direct programs and projects. And I was wondering how this reauthorization and more importantly, all this litigation in the So there's, there's a bunch of things in there. Let me try to address all of them. Uh, just for everybody watching us, uh, Priya is bringing up the difference between a regional center program, which is a temporary program, and that's what we've been talking about, versus the direct EB-5 program, where you invest in a project, you're going to own some or all of the project, and you're responsible to make sure your investment creates 10 full-time jobs for U.S. workers. So as Priya mentioned, the direct program never expired. It's a permanent program. It's not a temporary program. It doesn't need to be extended. So even when the regional center program expired on June 30, 2021, the direct program continued. Well, when there was no regional center, 
a lot of the pro the project developers created what's called pooled direct EB-5 programs. So basically it might be a project that's going to create 500 jobs, direct jobs. Well, if you have a project that's going to create 500 direct jobs, you can have 50 investors in a pooled direct EB-5 program. So that became somewhat the rage in the gap period after the regional center program expired. When the new law came into play, the Reform and Integrity Act of March of 22, the, the direct program continues. However, a huge change was made under the new law. And that is going forward, starting in March of 22, uh, 2022, every direct program is limited to one investor. So if you have more than one investor in the example I gave you, that now must be part of the regional center program. So direct EB-5 continues to exist. If you're one investor investing in a business, it's going to create 10 jobs. If there's any pooling of investment more than one, then you're part of the regional center program. And uh, on the regional center program, you know, I think it was very unfair that they took all the regional centers away because we have Purvey, we, we own and operate five regional centers. Every year for each regional center, we pay $17,000 annual filing fee and then spend, you know, several, you know, maybe a hundred thousand in terms of economic analysis and all the, all the documents that we need to gather and prove to the government. So there's a significant amount of investment regional center operators have to, to upkeep their, their, their regional centers to make sure they're compliant, to make sure to do the annual report. And then just poof, without any warning, those regional centers were taken away. And if it wasn't for this you know, litigation and, and the settlement that you all were able to negotiate, we would have lost everything. We would have lost these regional centers that we maintained and did everything the government asked other than, you know, one day they just disappeared. You know, Abtin, as a, as a lawyer and as a trial lawyer, uh, a lot of times your legal analysis starts by saying that just doesn't seem right. And the concept, no matter what business you're in, forget EB-5, forget regional centers. If, if, if the, U, the US government, some agency of the US government said, we have just decided that all immigration law firms, including classical immigration law partners, have lost their license. Well, that's just not right. You can't do that. Well, then how can you do that with a regional center? How can you say to 630 plus regional centers who've made major investments, who have stakes in major projects, who have thousands of investors relying on them by a website posting that we have decided you don't exist anymore and that you have to, in order to re-exist, you have to file an application that for all practical purposes will take us years and years and years and years to even look at. When, when, when they were getting maybe 30 of these regional center applications a year, it was taking a couple of years average to adjudicate them, to approve them. Well, if 630 regional centers are going to file for reauthorization together under a new law, do the math, of how many years that's going to take. And meanwhile, the program shut down. So whether you're a lawyer or someone on the street, you're probably gonna say, that's not right, that doesn't make sense.
and that's kind of where I started. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, actually, I was uh, flying when this happened. I was flying to attend a conference at IUSA, and kind of wrote literally just on a scratch pad my notes of the reasons I thought this was wrong, legally, morally, and every other way. And a lot of that ended up being included in the lawsuit that we filed. Yeah, I mean, I guess not, not only would that be considered unjust taking, but unjust taking without any due process of the law, which I think we would all have a problem with. Uh, but I'm going to quote the judge from the case. I think at one point he asked uh, the defendants, do you just hate EB-5? And I just love that comment because I think a lot of us in the industry, we feel like these investors are being treated unfairly. Other immigration programs, you know, they're not perfect, but at least they're moving along. And it just seems like, you know, the, the EB-5 investors, their filing fees are paying a big portion of, uh, you know, the expenses of USCIS to hire new adjudicators, new lawyers, and those resources aren't really being used for EB-5. And it just, investors are frustrated, very frustrated. And, you know, we talk to investors all the time. Invest some investors regret having invested in EB-5. They've been waiting two, three years, still haven't heard anything back. And, you know, as, as, as regional center operators and as, you know, people that are offering securities, we're fiduciaries for these investors. We have to protect them. But unfortunately, we have to deal with an ancient government agency that's just not efficient. And, you know, love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, you know, unfortunately, I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I, and I, as I said, I go back with this program to 1990 when it started. And I've been involved in it, you know, at a lot of different levels. And it is frustrating that, uh, and I, you know, I, I feel comfortable saying that this is not a favored program within the immigration service. And they have done lots of things to prevent it from being successful. You know, for example, they, the processing times for any application are in many cases five or 10 times longer than anything else in the immigration service. Uh, they post on the website processing times for various applications of five plus years. Um, well, that's not an agency is saying, well, we're going to allocate as many resources we can to make sure this is successful. Uh, and that's a problem. And I hope that it will change going forward. And I, I would say, Aptin, that one of the uh, things that I'm most, uh, most proud that I accomplished in this settlement is that uh, I put into the settlement agreement language a provision that the immigration service must meet with us, with representatives of the plaintiffs, uh, at least quarterly for at least two years to talk about this program and the implementation of the settlement going forward. Well, that's a huge deal because, you know, this has not been an agency that has been interested in discussing with the regulated public uh, anything we're talking about. Uh, and now by settlement and ultimately court order, they will be required to do this. And I think, you know, the, the goal is, is not to make these meetings adversarial in any way. You know, the goal is to make these meetings collaborative in a way that the agency and, and you know, representatives of the regulated public uh, will be able to discuss problems. We maybe will better understand some of their issues they'll understand the, the, the industry's issues uh, and hopefully create a collaborative effort going forward 
that will make this program even more successful than we can imagine today. So, Ron, um, in terms of um, in terms of the the, the new uh, legislation and you know having these conversations with USCIS, I think you know there's a lot of things that Congress may have gotten wrong just because they're not well versed in you know there's there's the letter of the law and how the program works from a legal perspective, and then there is the market and what's realistic. And you know what you're saying is actually fantastic. I wish Congress would have also talk to industry experts, IIUSA, other industry groups in terms of feasibility of some of the things that included, you know, some of the things that they have included violates other parts of uh, litigation. And some of that stuff still has to get, uh, you know, worked around. And when USCIS puts out their final rulemaking or the final um, uh, adjudication policy, I think there's still some little bugs that need to be worked out. But I think if, if Congress, when they're writing you know, this pieces of litigation, if they would have conferred with the industry, we could have been very helpful. And I do applaud you for, you know, for offering to work with USCIS in a collaborative way every, every quarter or so to make sure that they understand, you know, how, what, what actually works and doesn't work from a, from a market perspective, from a, from someone that's, you know, dealing with investors, dealing with project developers, dealing with, people that are trying to create jobs and making sure that, you know, the law does the integrity measures that Congress intended, but also that it works. Yeah, team was, so I can tell you when, when I was chair for a number of years of the EB-5 Committee of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, we were able, it was probably the only time in the program history where we were able to have regular collaborative meetings with the Immigration Service on EB-5. And those were the kind of the halcyon days of, of, of EB-5. Uh, did the government agree with everything we said? Absolutely not. Did they listen to everything we said? Were we able to present well-reasoned legal memoranda on a lot of different points? Uh, and in some cases they say, no, we don't agree. And in others they say, yeah, we never thought of that and we do agree. Um, and, and I think from both sides' point of view, those were very productive days. For whatever reason, they disappeared, uh, and now I hope we'll be able to reenact them. And the more dialogue you have uh, among among parties that hopefully share the desire to make the program work, it can only be better. So, Ron, I know we've been talking a lot about the E5 program. Of course, there's been a lot going on with that over the past year. But one of the topics I wanted to be able to touch on with you today. And it sort of flows into what we were just talking about, about the USCIS and other programs being available that are being processed much faster than EB-5. And I know there's a lot of investors who are looking for those faster options and continue to look for those faster options, specifically clients in China or Vietnam, for example. And one of those options that they turn to in order to enter the US faster is the E-2 program. So I was hoping that you could sort of tell us what the E-2 program is and the main differences between the E-2 and the EB-5. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that because uh, we, uh, we do a lot of E-2s for our clients and E-2 very much weaves into the fabric of, of EB-5. So what is E-2? E-2 is a visa, not a green card. So the EB-5 is a green card, the E-2 is a visa but in many ways, it's the best visa to the U.S. that you can get. It's a five-year visa. It can be renewed five years at a time, literally forever. 
Uh, the, you can invest at a much lower amount than EB-5. Uh, your, your, your spouse is able to work in the United States anywhere he or she wants immediately without any sponsorship. Your kids can go to school and you can often get the E-2 visa within two or three months. So it's got lots and lots of advantages, but it's not a green card. So many people do it as a prelude to a green card. You get the E-2, you can get to the U.S. now, and in the meantime, you do your EB-5. Some do it instead of EB-5. There may be tax advantages to E-2 uh, because you, depending on how much time you spend in the U.S., you may not be taxed on worldwide income, whereas you will be taxed on worldwide income if you get a green card. So that's the overview concept of E2. Uh, people always ask, well, how much do I have to invest? And unlike EB5, where the answer is now 800,000 or a million and 50,000, on E2, there's no exact number answer. It's very flexible. And the amount of investment is based on what kind of business you're investing in. And showing that the amount you've invested is sufficient for that type of business to be successful. So for example, if you're investing in a, you're gonna uh, become a franchisee on a franchise restaurant, well, it may be that the normal investment is 200,000, in which case 200,000 may be fine for an E2. If you're investing in a manufacturing business, there's nothing I know you're gonna be able to manufacture at 200,000. So you may need a much, 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 much larger investment to do an E2 for that. So it's a flexible amount. Now, uh, I've, we've done E2s for many, many decades, thousands of them. Traditionally, for people who are citizens of countries that have investment treaties with the US, and there are over 80 countries that have investment treaties with the US. So we put the E2 project together uh, and we're able to get them the E2 visa. Well, what changed was, and I, I will take some you know, responsibility for this. Um, uh, and and it, it, you know, we represented many, many Chinese investors who at the time they invested were able to get a green card within a year or two. And then because of quota weights, all of a sudden it's 15 years. And so the issue is, well, can we do anything to help them? And I, and maybe others also thought of the idea that, well, since we don't have an investment treaty with China, they can't do an E2, but there are various countries in the world that have investment treaties with the US and have what's called citizenship by investment programs. Two of the best examples are Grenada in the Caribbean and Turkey. So if my Chinese client, as an example, uh, invests some amount of money, which may be a couple hundred thousand or so in Grenada, within four months or so, they may be a perfectly legal Grenada citizen with a Grenada passport. And we can then do an E2 for them as a Grenadian citizen because we have this treaty with Grenada. And so this became a very, very popular alternative for many of the countries that we don't have investment treaties with, which happens to coincide with the countries where there's the most demand for US immigration. China, India, Brazil, South Africa, Russia, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and I could go on a, a long list, 
of client of com countries we don't have investment treaties with, but where we do have clients now who are obtaining citizenship in Grenada or Turkey that enables them to be able to get an E2 visa to come to the U.S. And one of the great features, I think, of this new uh, piece of legis legislation that we haven't talked about is that there's a provision in there where investors, while they're awaiting their EB-5 visa, if they're here on another legal visa, and you know, I'd love to hear your opinion on which one of those qualify because there's differences of opinion between different lawyers that I asked this question to, but they're able to stay and um, have work authorization and, and, and basically not have to wait for their green, final green card application to be approved before they could come here and have work authorization. Do you mind just touching, touching on that and what, you know, to, to be on the safe side, what visa categories that could, that, you know, they could use to, to remain here while they're awaiting their green card application? Yeah, Tim, so what you're talking about is called concurrent adjustment of status. So when you get an EB-5 petition approved, uh, traditionally, up until now, the procedure has been that you get this EB-5 petition approved, uh, your paperwork gets sent to something called the National Visa Center, and eventually you're going to get processed for an immigrant visa interview at a U.S. consulate outside of the U.S. And in the meantime, you have no legal basis to remain in the U.S. And that's been the program up until now. One of the things we were able to get in the legislation, as you point out, is this concurrent adjustment of status, which curiously had always existed with the other employment-based immigration categories, where you're sponsored by an employer, where you're doing something of national interest or extraordinary ability. It's always existed for this concurrent adjustment, but under this Reform and Integrity Act, it now applies to EB-5 for the first time. Well, why is this significant? It means that now people can file their EB-5 petition and their green card application at the same time and don't have to wait for one to be approved before you can just start the process for the other and have to go to the U.S. consulate. Now you're able to legally stay in the U.S. the minute you file these applications um, and may never have to return to your country to go to an interview. Uh, and in fact, may never have an interview at all anywhere. So that's a huge deal. When you file your adjustment of status, there's two other things you can file for at the same time. One is employment authorization to be able to work while the government's processing your application. And two is a travel document to be able to travel out of the country while the government's processing your application. So that's all great. What isn't quite as great is the fact that the immigration service is way slower than they used to be in processing those two applications. So if I'm here as a visitor, I'm here on an E-2 visa, and I file for my green card, um, I can't work, my spouse can't work until my employment authorization is approved, which may take six months or more. In many cases, even more importantly, I can't travel out of the country <clears throat> until I get a travel document approved, which may take six or nine months or more. The exception to that is if I have an H or L visa, then I can continue to work, continue to travel. So if I have an H or L visa, there's really no downside to this. 
If I have, for example, an e-visa, then I cannot travel outside of the U.S. once I file this concurrent adjustment of status. And we, we are constantly counseling. We have many E2 clients and many EB5 clients, and we're constantly um, counseling them on whether this is good for them. And what I say is, with your E2 visa, you can travel in and out of the U.S. as much as you want. The minute you file for concurrent adjustment of status, you can stay here, you can continue to operate your business, but you can't leave the U.S. until you get this travel document approved, which may be six, nine months or more. That's okay for some, and it's not okay for others. And so it's a great option to have available, and many of our clients are taking advantage of it. Uh, but it does require case-by-case -case analysis with our clients as to whether it's the right option for them. And what is your opinion on uh, F1 or other student visa categories or tourist visas? Well, number one is, well, with, it's somewhat different for the two. <clears throat> with a tourist visa, uh, it's very important for the tourist not to file for a green card very shortly after they get to the U.S. Why? Because when you come in as a tourist, you are either saying or it's implied, I'm just coming to visit. I'm coming to visit Disney World or my Aunt Edna in Texas. Uh, that's what you can do with a visitor's visa. If in, the, if in the back of your mind you're saying, well, I'm going to get into the U.S. on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday I'm going to apply for an EB-5 green card, well, you may have misrepresented when you came to the country as a tourist. So we always like to wait some number of months, preferably a few months, after arriving in the U.S. as a tourist before you apply for anything related to a green card to be able to dispel any notion that you really intended this when you came here. Uh, with the F1, if they've been studying a long time, it's a little bit less of an issue. I'm a little bit less concerned about that um, uh, because it's not somebody who just came to the US as a tourist. If you're coming as a student and you're continuing to study, then you're not really misrepresenting anything when you continue to study and, by the way, also apply for a green card. So there's a little bit less concern there, but still, that F1 needs to understand right now, if, if, if your father or grandfather is sick, you're free to travel on your F1 visa. The minute you do this concurrent adjustment, if, if, if pop or grandpop you know, aren't doing very well, you can't travel or else you abandon your application. As long as they understand that, then it, they may be good candidates for the concurrent adjustment of status. Uh, we have a lot of clients who have chosen to move forward with that, but yes, they definitely have to understand that they're sort of going to be trapped within the U.S. for a certain number of months, and that sometimes is unknown with USCIS given their processing times. But a lot of them do want to do that, and they want to be in the U.S., so they don't mind sort of staying there for an extended period of time. Yeah, it, it certainly is a big advantage to have that option available. And as I said, it's been available to other categories and it, there was no good reason it wasn't available for EB-5. And I'm glad we've been able to uh, fill in that blank. Well, the concurrent filing has also sort of changed the structure of how we've been doing applications in terms of who becomes the primary on the application. Um, you know, previously, a lot of times it would be um, the husband or the working spouse that would be the primary, and then the wife and the children would be dependents. 
But now given this option for concurrent filing, oftentimes they want to make the wife the primary so that she could actually go with the dependents and start living in the U.S. and hopefully working eventually and, and the kids can go to school while the uh, working spouse comes back and forth. So it's also changed the structure of that. Yeah, it, it's um, certainly a, a feasible strategy for the non-working spouse with the children uh, to choose to come here, stay here, uh, apply for adjustment of status, and then the working spouse who has to go back and forth to Saudi Arabia or China or India, wherever they're going, for business purposes or other purposes, not to do the adjustment of status, but still be able to do the green card at a U.S. consul later on. That's a perfectly good strategy. We also find for long before the new law that we had many cases where the non-working spouse was the principal investor, um, more for tax reasons. And many, in many cases, the working spouse says, well, there's no way I'm going to get a green card in the U.S. I, I have business operations in seven different countries. And somehow, some way, I pay no taxes in any of them. And all of a sudden, the minute I get a green card in the U.S., I'm going to be taxed by the U.S. on my income in all seven countries. Well, that's a non-starter. And so the way that's solved in many of our clients, uh, we often work with tax counsel, is that the non-working spouse ends up being the investor and applies for the green card. The working spouse, maybe 10 years from now, will want to get a green card, but doesn't apply at all and simply comes to the U.S. back and forth as a visitor's visa two or three or four times a year to visit the family in the U.S. So that's a that's something that we've been dealing with for a long time. Ron, uh, do you mind just uh, telling the audience about the different visa categories that the new legislation uh, has and, you know, if there are any, any of those categories, if they're current or faster than the other categories? So on, under the new law, there's a new concept called set-asides. And this is particularly important to our Chinese clients uh, and, and to some extent to our Indian and Vietnamese clients. So what the new law says is that 20% of all of the EB-5 green cards must go to investors in rural areas. There's also a 10% set aside for high unemployment areas and a 2% set aside for infrastructure projects. Now, this is really important because it creates new lines, new quota lines. So, you know, previously, I would have to advise an investor in China, if you choose to invest in an EB-5 project, realistically right now, you may have a 15-year wait under the quota before you're gonna be able to get to the United States. And that's a non-starter, and either you don't do it or you look at the E2 option. Well, now I can tell that same investor, if you invest in a rural project today, you may be the first in line in this new quota category with no waiting list. So you go from 15 to zero in terms of a waiting list. This is extremely significant, not so significant, for countries that don't have a waiting list, China has the biggest. Vietnam has, uh, you know, has uh, has a beginning to have a quota issue. India is likely to have a quota issue. 
So it's important for them, but most especially the Chinese. The other thing that the law provides is that if you invest in a rural area project, um, you will get something called priority processing. Now, this is a new concept, and we don't know what it's going to mean in real life. So what do, what do we know? We know normally when you file an EB-5 petition, it's going to be a pretty long time <clears throat> before the Immigration Service looks at it and adjudicates it and hopefully approves it. Does that mean a year and a half? Does that mean two years? Does it mean two and a half years? It varies, but it's, it's going to be a while. We also know that very, very rarely we can get the Immigration Service to do what's called an expedite. And with an expedite, they will deal with it very quickly, often weeks or months. That's existed all along and that doesn't change. What's new in the law is if you invest in a rural project, you will get priority processing. What we expect that will mean is something shorter than every other project. So if they're averaging two years to do a, a every EB-5 petition, hopefully it'll be no more than a year, a year and a half, a year and a quarter to do the rural project because it's given priority. But we don't know in reality how, how big of a difference that's going to make. I'm going to say something a little controversial, but uh, you know, I think just just eyeballing, you know, some of our competitors, some of the people that are bringing projects to the market, it seems like many groups are focused on on these rural projects. And you know, at, at Brevet, I have two hats I wear. One side is the EB5 fundraising, and I manage that group. The other side is the developers and originating new loans. And you know, so we have the underwriting. You know, we're we're uh, um, registered investment advisors subject to SEC oversight. We have to protect our investors. We provide bridge financing on all these projects before investors come in. So the projects have to make sense. We ha I have to be able to take them to our investment committee and, and get approval to fund those projects for bridge financing before the EB-5 dollars come in. And I just find it very hard to underwrite many rural projects. I, I see, you know, I'm not saying all of them, but generally rural projects tend to be riskier and I think a lot of the failed projects in the PACs, there have been many that were in the rural project. Um, I think everyone's focused on kind of the, the rural, but not necessarily on the 68%, which is a larger, really good projects in, in, in urban areas or areas that are high, high unemployment. If you were to guess, would you think that rural projects would get adjudicated faster or just a regular TEA project that happens to have an expedite? Love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Well, I think a TEA project that has an expedite will be adjudicated faster than a rural project. I think a rural project will be adjudicated faster than a regular TEA or non-TEA project that doesn't have an expedite. That's, I think, the, the order of things. And Abtin, you're right, there's a, there's a real tug and pull here. Why, why did Congress have to do this? Congress had to do this because investors weren't interested in investing in rural projects. Developers weren't interested in doing rural projects. and 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 you're, in many cases, there's a higher risk at every level in a rural project. Well, many of the key senators are from rural areas. Uh, and we're never going to agree to legislation that didn't do everything possible to encourage people to invest in rural projects. That doesn't mean that all of a sudden, all of the top regional centers are going to change their business model and, and you know, find a project in an area nobody ever heard of. Um, and that's not likely to change. So there will still be 
um, most projects on the market, I'm expecting, from top developers, top regional centers, will likely continue to be in urban areas because that's where the construction demand is. Uh, that's often the least risk uh, opportunities available and the most favorable opportunities available. That's not likely to change. And for many investors around the world, I expect that they will continue to invest in places they've heard of, um, in you know, US cities that they've heard of. Uh, but in China, I, I expect that if the difference is 15 year wait or zero wait, they will invest in rural projects. I was just gonna comment that this is gonna make you know, a big difference um, for a lot of our clients. We're actually seeing it now. So now that the program is back, we've been meeting with people. We had a seminar last night um, and we're gauging the interest. And definitely it's interesting to see if people are still going for, you know, the projects that are in an urban area or maybe with a more well-known regional center, but they're not one of the set-asides versus the chance of having priority processing in a rural area. So we're still trying to figure that out, but it'd be interesting to see what people go for. And Ron, I think you're absolutely right. I think, uh, you know, as someone who immigrated to the United States in 1991 myself, I think typically immigrants, even though there's no requirement that they live in the area they invest, typically they want to be in the area they invest. And most immigrants want to go to gateway cities where there's other people from their home country that they know and speak the language. Typically, they flock to New York and California and Texas and Florida and less to Iowa and Idaho and, you know, uh, Wyoming, places like that. But, but you know, I guess, you know, the, the, the verdict is going to be out to see where investors are going to be more interested. I, I feel investors at the end of the day are interested in good real estate projects by good developers in gateway cities. But I guess we'll have to see. I'd love to hear your Final thoughts on that. No, I, I, I agree with you. Uh, and I, I think this will be, as I said, um, mostly an issue for Chinese investors. Um, I think for most other investors, uh, what we have seen in the past will continue, um, which is that they're, they're just comfortable investing with developers who have a reputation, names that they've heard of, cities that they've heard of. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, it's the fact that uh, you know that there's a set aside will be irrelevant to most countries, uh, and priority processing I don't think is going to change by itself where someone invests. So I do agree with you, Abdi. Ron, it's been such a pleasure having you on and listening to your insights. We thank you uh, on, on behalf of myself, Priya, and the rest of the team to, to join us and giving us your insights. And we really want to thank you from the bottom of our heart to get this legislation finalize and uh, you know the settlement agreement done thank you yeah thank, thank you. you and i can tell you i very much enjoyed the dialogue and thank you for inviting me. thank you so much hope we see you soon to contact the investment migration report please email priya malik at priya p-r-e-e-y-a at stepglobalgroup.com or abtain vaziri at the investment migration report at gmail.com or connect to our pages on LinkedIn and YouTube. Thank you for listening.